0: The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute
1: for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again in another episode of In the Market Trenches. Really happy to have you. We're really excited about this episode. We have a special guest for you. Uh, before we get to that, you can follow us on our blog, www.accretivewealthpartners.com. We have a Facebook. We have a LinkedIn. Uh, you can download our podcast and subscribe anywhere podcasts are available. We're also on inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can also find us on snn.network or the SNN YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash SNN wire. Um, so with that i'd like to turn it over to gary to introduce our guest uh gary take take it away
2: okay well we have a special guest today a good friend of mine from business school we met uh, i don't know it probably in the trenches about 10 years ago so mm-hmm. he's on to talk to us about uh one, one of his many adventures he's uh he's a microcap, small microcap investor value investor um neither of which seem to be particularly in favor today but uh He's going to be uh, educating us on some of his past experiences because, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure both of those styles will come back into vogue at some point in the future. So, without any further ado, uh, Peter Rabover of Artco Capital.
1: Peter, welcome. Hey, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me, Gary, Eric, uh, I appreciate it. And uh, Gary, uh, Gary and I have been friends for a long time. We've uh, met like the first few weeks of uh, business school and we were in the same section and kind of uh, we're both value investors, so we, which was somewhat rare in our business school class, so we uh, we, we kind of hit it off. Yeah, we were part of uh, you know we were part of Darden
2: Capital Management, which was the student-led investment program, and uh, Peter had the misfortune of hearing all of my ideas through business school, uh, the good, the bad, the <laughs> ugly, and uh, everything in between. So uh, oh. let's see. So Peter, I know a lot about you. Uh, as I mentioned, we met at the uh, University of Virginia's Darden School of Business did their, uh, did their uh, capital management program, everything else like that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how uh, maybe a little bit before you got to business school, how you got interested in investing, what kind of investor you are, and uh, what got you to uh, Artco and where you are today?
1: Sure, um, thanks for asking. Uh, so, I, you know, about 20, some little over 20 years ago, I was an undergrad at Duquesne in Pittsburgh. And uh, this was right around the stock market bubble, which is uh, not dissimilar to today's behavior, um, and but I was too young, and I didn't really realize the implications at the time, but uh, I was looking for majors, and one of my professors gave me a theory of finance textbook, and uh, so I read right. that cover to cover, and um, kind of boring, but uh, I, I enjoyed it for the for the most part, except the efficient market hypothesis that didn't really sit well with me, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And uh, Now, Peter, remind so, me: Are you the are you
2: the most most notable alumni of Duquesne in, in the investment
1: world? Is that you? I heard it was. No, I don't. No, I don't think so. Uh, not. I think we're thinking of different <laughs> Duquesnes, not Duquesne uh, Asset Management, but Duquesne University. So, um, and I, you know, I don't know. I think I think we had some notable alumni that are probably a little quieter. Um, and then <laughs> the guy, the uh, the the guy gave me. Um, uh the warren buffett letters and that and uh peter lynch's one up on wall street both of those like really resonated with me and so it was like one of those natural things where i'm like oh i get it like buying cheap companies and then people will recognize that they're too cheap and bid them up and i'm like this like this seems like a challenge and i was like i was a former division one wrestler looking for a new challenge at the time and i was like oh this is perfect so that was sort of my background and i've always wanted to do what i'm doing now i was a little circus uh didn't didn't get there right away after college. I uh, was in the Peace Corps and I worked for, did some m a for US Steel, um, got my CFA charter. And um, then uh, along with business school, I was lucky enough to work for a large cap value and a mid cap value fund, which um, we'll talk about in context of micro caps and, uh, and leverage in a bit. But those were just very good experiences and um, both in um, in the middle, uh, t- after the bubble and the financial crisis, and the last ten years, and uh, so I've always wanted to run my own investment partnership. So I've launched uh, Artco Capital a little over five years ago. Um, we've uh, done pretty well—not this particular year—but I'm confident it's a uh, temporary once the mania dies down. And uh, yeah, so we invest. You know, our average market caps like. 70, 80 million, and um, uh, it's pretty concentrated. We have 11 positions. Uh, The biggest ones are like 15%, and uh, which is, does make it very volatile and uh, not particularly enjoyable in situations like this, but it does, it's a good risk reward. And so one of the things that I, um, there's a lot of risks in micro caps like a lot of them will go down to zero for various reasons and uh we'll talk about one later in a bit but the way i try to control for that risk um and again this is all relative to like a mid cap or a large cap is i stay away from leverage uh micro cap managers do not know how to ma- manage debt uh, i try to make sure that we're incentivized so uh, the ceos or the co-founders have at least some or insiders have you know 20 25%. I think our average is 25%. And it's about 20 million dollars at risk for these people, and because you just don't know, you like you can you can uh you want somebody to be incentivized not to make these things go to zero, and so um, right, and, right, uh, the, yeah, and so the, those are those are kind of the big ones, and I think the strategy really involves buying things. I mean, like, more, you know, yeah,
2: one of the things I've noticed over time is that these microcap management teams don't necessarily have, they're not necessarily the A plus management teams. So uh, them having some skin in the game, you know, uh, at least it's their own money that they're, that they're, that they're risking. Right. Is that sort of the idea?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, look, in the past I've been uh, somewhat, uh, I've given passes to management teams that didn't have as much. And that has both worked out and not worked out, but uh um, and interestingly enough, the Hudson Technologies, one that we'll, we'll get into later, was a very incentivized uh, management team that was um, uh, just didn't work out. The, the real strategy of the fund is to buy uh, things at balance sheet prices uh, that are, you know, whether, whether the companies are trading in assets that, uh, or prices that are reflective of what they have on the balance sheet but not reflective of what they have on the income statement and hoping that what they have on the income statement will become apparent within a few, within our holding period, three to five years. And uh, that will cause the stock to trade as a going concern rather than the NAV of the balance sheet. And so that's kind of, right. that's worked sure. out in the past. And in micro caps, there's a lot more opportunity to do, to do that.
2: Yeah, no, that sounds good. So, so what, if I'm going to summarize what you're looking to do with companies that you're involved in, you're looking for um, asset protection that can sort of turn in uh, uh, a balance sheet story that can turn into an income statement story over the next couple of years. Is that a exactly. fair exactly. characterization? Yep, yep. Cool, uh-huh. cool. Um, let's see, so Eric, do you have any questions before we dive into the, the
0: uh, case? Yes, yeah, so what, what was the toughest part of transitioning from the large and mid cap space to the micro cap space? Yeah, I mean, like it, it's hard to describe,
1: but I, I think I was a uh, the midcap, sp- the midcap company that I worked for, a really good company called Han Capital Management, and um, uh, I, uh, my boss, let me interview hundreds of management teams. And uh, for the large cap one, we, we didn't do as much. My boss didn't really believe in the large cap uh, and the interview of the managers, but I still got to interview enough. And it's just, you know, these are like Harvard business school graduates or Darden graduates that are, I certainly had two Darden CEOs that I've spoken to in the past. And, um, and they're higher, they're higher quality. They think about things like cost of capital and capital allocation. And, you know, and a lot of these, uh, small microcap teams and not, not that they're not smart they're just like you know they're they're less they're more naive right sure. I, and i i find after a couple of years um that proving to the ceos that i am clearly a shareholder and i'm friendly uh, a lot of times they email to me and start asking me for advice like what we should do here and what would you think of this and you know i just have to not be a jerk and then management teams will talk to you and actually lean on you for for advice. I find it, there there are some people that are like, "Oh, you need to be this huge manager to get access to management." I'm like, "Man, I got three emails I got three emails in my inbox from CEOs of my companies that I like have, don't have time to answer this week." So, it's, it's it's a little different. So, I would say that's probably one of the bigger differences is access is significantly easier than you think and their levels of experience or understanding um, uh, of how to be a grown-up public markets company is probably a little less sophisticated so those are the the, the big
0: ones cool um hey yeah, you want to jump right into your story yeah sure i mean i so i think
1: the the it, the title or the uh, the concept here is in the trenches and uh and uh we can talk about horror stories i, I find this one like somewhat fascinating because uh to this day i'm still not really sure why things went wrong or what what well i can tell you why it went they went wrong but um why the market didn't react the way it should have but basically the story is hudson technologies and uh it was uh, what they did was or do is they sell refrigerators uh, uh, refrigerant gases for air conditioning and freezers freezers. Mm -hmm. and the, and there's two ways to buy those gases and there's virgin gas that's produced in house. And then there's reclaimed gas. That's, uh, you collect from, you know, from your air conditioners and you send that to the company and then they process it and, um, and then they, uh, resell it to you. And the premise there was that because of all of the environmental laws, uh, and the EPA had an industry-wide sunset that was supposed to phase out the virgin gases, and only gases you could you could buy were the reclaimed gases. And clearly, that would make the reclaimed gases much more valuable if the available supply goes down while the installed base of air conditioners uh, sort of stays relatively the same or declines a lot slower. And mm-hmm. for uh, and the company was founded by essentially the guy who founded the industry. You know, I think he had like 25 million at stake. The The, the company had a clean balance sheet. And you know, for uh, the only rumor there was that we, and I just could not ever confirm it, that there was all these stockpiles of all this gas um, out there. It's just sitting in people's warehouses. It was like the shadow stockpile, but the, but the gas prices were, Uh, You know, for many years, were like three, four, five, six dollars, and so for shadow
2: inventory of shadow inventory. Let me let me just jump in. Shadow inventory of this company's product or this company and a bunch of other competitors out there. There was just an oversupply for the industry.
1: It was oversupplied for the industry, but like I said, keeping in mind this company, so it was a pretty concentrated industry, and so I think these guys had like twenty five percent. Uh, market share and then there was Airgas and National and I think together they owned like you know 70 to 80% so there was an ag- oligopolistic behavior I guess in, in a way that was mm-hmm. sort of once again you're thinking that it was uh, irrational market that the players were rational right. in, 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 the, in that situation and so for a few years at work the price jumped up to uh, from like three four dollars to uh six to eight and all the way to like 16 18 for a couple of years right so there was two summer seasons um that where that worked really really well and so my thought and keeping in mind that the price of 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 that gas was um uh in the low mid-single digits for like a half a decade so whoever was been holding that shadow inventory must have been paying was paying warehouse fees etc for years Right, and so all of a sudden, that you had the spike in prices uh, because the market just started freaking out about the virgin phase out, Uh, and we're talking about the R22 refrigerant gas market. Um, And you know, the to me it was really weird that I I had to assume that if there were rational players in the market that during the two summers where there was the prices were above ten dollars, that they would start to sell their inventory that they've been holding right. in the, in those warehouses for years. And, you know, once again, really hard to confirm, there was a guy out there that was, um, who hated Hudson technology. So he was spewing a lot of false things to the, um, to the short sellers. Um, and so he was kind of compromised bias. So he was not the, he was kind of the little boy who cried wolf, who cried wolf a lot of times, and you were so he had less belief, but you know, in the end, I guess he turned out to be right. Um, but essentially what had happened was um, the, the stock price was high, the natural or the R22 price was high. And the CEO decided to merge uh, the company with air gas or air gas sold their division um, to them. And all of a sudden, you know, they would own like 50, 60% of the market. And, um, and, You know, it seemed like a really good idea at the time, except that, you know, they used leverage to, um, it had a clean balance sheet before. And so they used leverage, significant amount of leverage to make this acquisition. And so here you have to assume that a very incentivized CEO who had 25, you know, $30 million of his own money, essentially been in the, ran the industry for 30 years, uh, knew all the players and presumably he had at this point would have control of the industry in some ways like he could control mm-hmm. the inventory or couldn't control the demand but could at least control the supply and uh, so you have to assume that he was making the right decision in making this acquisition it seemed like a really good good like, you know the stock jumped for like a whole day on, on, on the acquisition and then things started to go wrong and then like whoever so, so whoever let me was, let me jump in right there yeah. P-
2: peter and ask you a question were you involved pre-acquisition and then this happened or did the acquisition spur you to take a look at it
1: no i was involved in pre-acquisition it was very uh um, i was i was buying it at very low prices at at, at the time uh, the stock price would, i'm not going to name it to you but um what, but, was the, what was the market market cap roughly uh when i say like 70, $80 million, like off the top of my head, I, I, I could be. All right, I, so I, I, I,
0: if the CEO owned 25, $30 million, I mean, that's, he owned a good chunk. Maybe, it, maybe it was, maybe it was a
1: hundred. Yeah, because I, I remember, because yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I
1: remember he, he had over, I, the figure that I remember is it was 20, when I bought in, he had $25 million at risk right, right. at that particular time. Right, like, yeah. right. And so.
2: Hey, can I, yeah, can I back up and ask an even like dummy type question? How, how'd you find this one? And uh, how did your search strategy uh, help turn it up?
1: Yeah, I think that one I might have been. Um, uh, that was a screen. I think it was like a free cash flow balance sheet yield screen, and I think they had they started to have a good year. So all of a sudden, I think it was like a thirty percent free cash flow return uh, on assets or something like yeah. So it was a cash flow ROA screen, and so okay. that's that, that, that's how they, they popped up, and it was like. Cash flow, ROA, and insider manager ownership and clean balance sheet, and I think that like that sort of popped up, and I, I was looking at it, and, um, and I remember being very excited because I bottom ticked it for like, like getting getting my, <laughs> getting my getting my getting my what what I thought at the time was the bottom, but uh, but you know like it ran up significantly after after that, so um, right, and and so I felt certainly felt like a genius. Okay, so, and, so- so, so you found it. You, you, you bought
2: some. Uh, they do this, what looks to be a transformational deal, largely financed with debt, if I'm understanding you correctly.
1: Uh, they did they did a small secondary IPO. And, uh, you know, I, the, the other thing I can tell you is no company of mine over the last micro cap company that uh, that has done a secondary uh whose price didn't decline 50% after it exists. So if you if you have a micro cap and they do a secondary, probably a very bad signal. You know, it's not, it's an obvious statement, but I can tell you, you know, and it works pretty well for large caps, like, you know, you can, you know, Elon and Tesla and whatever, but micro caps just goes terrible. So don't do it. But, yeah, I
2: mean, that's one of the things I've noticed about these micro cap, I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the things I've noticed about these micro cap management teams is they're not very good at uh, um, sort of the capital stack and how they deal with it. Yep. And right. um, they can get a pretty, pretty messed up capital structure pretty darn quick. Either there's a, you know, a convert in there or some warrants with a lot of dilution or, they, you know, they, they don't do a good job issuing stock or, or retiring stock. It's like just not something that they think about uh, normally. I don't know if, they, if your experience has been any different, but that's certainly been mine
1: right and well the other thing that sort of happens is a lot of them are undercovered like by Wall Street and so uh, you know to a certain extent I, I know how that pitch goes but you'll get like you know one of these uh, bucket chops investment banks or at least like somewhat respectable uh, small tier investment banks come at like maybe like a William Blair or something like that come in and they'll start whispering in their ears like hey let's do the secondary we'll do some of these acquisitions for you. In, the, in this space and you know it'll be really good we'll get you Wall Street coverage and um, like that that essentially happened with USA technologies that's a whole other horror story that we can talk about but um, with leverage and acquisitions but is, is, that, is,
2: is, maybe we, maybe we could talk about that one another time isn't that the one where the guy followed you out of a conference
1: oh yeah well no I at a, during the con- he wouldn't answer my calls or emails uh, he did a secondary even though he told me he wasn't going to so wouldn't answer why he did it. So during the conference, during the Q&A, I raised my hand and asked him, and like, hey, why did you do the uh, secondary, like, right? And, uh, and, you know, he wouldn't really answer. And then somebody else asked him that. So he felt really embarrassed. And then he just took, as soon as the uh, webcast was over, he took off after me and chased me in the hallway and started screaming that why I embarrassed him in, in, on the webcast like this. And I'm like, man, oh my- like, you're not answering my questions, like, right? So... I, uh, the company blew. The company blew up very significantly because of him. So that's I feel pretty vindicated in that particular uh, situation. That's a that's a
2: good story. We'll have to have you back another time to tell the full uh, one. Yeah. that sounds like that could be fun. Um, okay, yeah, so this, yeah, I mean, tri- yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and, and so I I would say secondary. So they financed it with a secondary and debt. And so like, look, the premise there is like. The guy knows his industry. He has to know what like if there are shadow inventory. Clearly, he should understand this. Like, right? Mm-hmm. But, that there is, and at least he would have uh, seen this happen. And then, like, look, some short reports came out that how that at first my psychological response were like, ah, these like sons of bitches that are like, you know, they're just doing this manipulation thing, and um, and a lot of them, and a lot of them had. Bad points, which were I knew for fact not true, so that made me dismiss the more valid points in those in those reports. But realistically, I, I you know the they claimed that they acquired a significant amount of overpriced inventory from Airgas. Essentially, the deal was that Airgas was just dumping inventory on Hudson at significantly higher prices, and that was the deal. And they used leverage to buy it, and Uh, not, not the worst thesis. And it was partially correct. And so, and so, and so hold on. One of the things that Hudson had to do is write, will had to write off a lot of the inventory that they bought from, uh, from air gas. So you had a,
2: you had a question. Did it, did it, did it, did it give you any pause that Hudson was acquiring air gas's business and it wasn't sort of the other way around?
1: No, because like I said, the CEO was like the industry, uh, he, he, he didn't want to sell. He wanted because because in his mind we were just entering like this new growth phase of the R twenty two gas situation and uh, um, and they were um, uh, and there were all these other gases that were also coming off uh, EPA was going to phase them out and they had all these other things that they could get into it. So he was just pretty excited about where the industry was going and what the opportunity was. And he was just trying to consolidate it and leverage these gains for himself. I, I felt like, and you know, this was not, it was a very tiny part of air gas, like air gas is this giant, you know, large cap that, and this was a pretty small deal, which was maybe like $200 million, like off the top of my head, something like that. It was right. almost a merger. It was almost like, Yeah. You know, yeah.
2: Keep going, sorry.
1: No, no, no. And, and like I said, it just like it, maybe I was naive in in retrospect, but it, it did make a lot of, once again, logical economical sense. And this guy was at least one of the smarter people that I've spoken to whenever we'd have calls that mm-hmm. at least understood the market or it sure seemed like it and, um, and so we were in this phase of about six months where uh, these reports were coming out and all of a sudden the prices um, started, you know, coming down that season, whatever the year it was, maybe 2018, somewhere, maybe summer 2017 or 28, no, 2018, I think was the summer. And they were, uh, and uh, the prices went from $18 to like 12, 13, 11. Um, so obviously down, but still very profitable for, for, for certain uh, segments but clearly was uh, a lot less cash flow to go around on the for service in the debt and and, and so the kind of so like I, really
2: so, so if i could frame this up you have a hundred million dollar company that did a 200 million dollar acquisition
1: no 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 because they were i told you they, they ran up like 200 percent since then so they were like a 300 million dollar company at that point Got it. They, so they, it looked like
2: they, more like an er- a merger of equals at the time, which is uh,
0: right. you know, almost
2: never the case. But but they like to right. certainly like to be spun that way. Okay. And this was yeah. all debt financed primarily. Um, or
1: with, with a little secondary secondary I, that they did pre before this, because I think right. they were uh, right. I, the 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 interesting there interesting thing there was that the national air gas, Hudson and national were all about equal and market share and national was, uh, had a dying founder or something like this at the time. And so the premise for that secondary that they did this, but they were going to buy national, not air gas, the air gas thing was kind of a surprise, but sure. Like, you know, either, either one will, will, will work fine. And so, um, I think they wow. probably gave them better terms on the, on the air gas thing. So, um, um, Got it.
2: It seems like it seems like a key a key issue for the for them with the amount, in addition to the amount of debt that they took on, was perhaps they didn't control the the you know the input cost of what it was that you know the the you know if you think about income statements, it's price, volume, margin, and uh, you know maybe they had some good insight into volumes, but the pricing was was an element of this that they had that they essentially had no control over.
1: Well, they essentially it was all they. Right, and so, look it, it talks about input costs, like they essentially you either recognize those input costs as cost of goods sold or inventory right or you buy them at like a significantly high price, and you recognize that as inventory write downs like right on somewhere along the income statement, but either way, those were high input costs that that they bought like right and so um, mm-hmm. so so the the real wake up moment came for me you know, so I was reading these short reports and I was kind of annoyed about it, but I was like, you know, what if they have a valid point? Like if they are right, then I am kind of really screwed. So I, you know, I, I decided to hedge the position where I'm going to talk prices or whatever. Um, but the, they had this call, I think it was the second quarter of 2018, which like July sometime. And I, um, And they said these two things on the call that were so eye-opening for me that it was kind of uh, unbelievable. It was, they said, so uh, somebody asked them what their view on prices and inventory or whatever the market dynamics was. And the guy essentially said, um, oh, no, like we don't, like we have very little visibility in, in what we're doing and like you know we're just you know we think the prices will stay will stay flat at least or where where they are today 11 12 13 per per pound and i was like wait a minute like you just merged with like you just made like you're half the industry essentially a little more and you're telling me you don't have visibility into your your own market and you clearly just you know you did this with a lot of debt like right so like that was like a really red flag. And then like five minutes later, somebody pops on the call and says, hey, have you guys thought about covenants? Like, right, and what happens if these, pre- like yep. with your with your debt covenants? And they're like, oh no, we haven't thought about that. That's not like something that we've like we're we've, we've been concerned about. So flash forward two weeks later, they had to start issuing covenant uh, uh, modifications with JP Morgan. Um, but that, those two things to me were kind of the epitome of, very red flag-ish stuff. Like, so micro cap management teams have no idea. Don't you think that,
2: don't you think they had to know about the covenant issue? I mean, like it takes probably more than a week or two to get a waiver from JP Morgan.
1: Right. Well, I think they were reporting results, like, right. And I bet you they didn't think about the covenant issue when they were, because they were still meeting the covenants, like, right. But I'm sure once those, once the, they reported earnings and whatever JP they had to start J.P. Morgan called them and was like, Hey, let's talk about this. Like, right. Cause you're dangerously close. And I'm sure in their mind, that's not something they've ever experienced. They've, you know, they've never had debt as a public company. They've never had to manage around covenants and they get inexperienced like, right. And so I think that was just something that was, uh, w- was one of those things where goes to my point, small cap management teams don't know how to manage secondary markets or, uh, uh, or capital markets or debt levels. And but that's a risk. That's a real risk. And so you try to handicap that.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is you get some of these companies that take, take on too much debt and they don't really control their, own doesn't, it doesn't sound like this in this business, they really controlled their own destiny. And so, right. if, uh, and so you know, if you control your own destiny and your cash flows are stable, you know, you can hold some debt. Um, I don't know if maybe something changed where they thought that was the case and it turned out not to be the case, but it sounds like you know, um, you know, where this story was headed with a covenant issue was was not all that surprising to me as you started to describe the dynamics. Yeah,
1: yeah I don't think they were nefarious, but they certainly signaled to the market that you know now that we're bigger, you know, we'll it, it's much better for us, and you know, it made logical right. sets like like right when when you're an oligopoly and you become somewhat a duopoly uh in the market you're you know with lots of little guys still out there and then all of a sudden you know it's not as bad like right and they certainly right Right. they didn't they i don't think they were out there pushing it but they didn't dispute it i can tell you that right and so that's why that call was so surprising when they were like oh no we don't have visibility into you know what's going to happen this year it was just like uh, but but the other thing was just surprising that again uh, on the shadow inventory issue, this is the part that I still don't really understand who, the, who these people were that were holding this inventory for three to five, that they had at three to $5 for five years. And when the prices got up to $18 in the summer of 2017, they didn't dump it into the market at, at that time. Like, what were you hoping for? Like 30, like $30 gas price? Like, I don't really, I wasn't really sure. Like, they haven't been 18 ever. Like, right? So you, you have right. these... P- prices all the time. Uh-huh. high, and, like you're not going to dump it. You're not dumping that. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> did you ever get confirmation that the shadow inventory was actually
1: there? Well, it was just, I mean, uh, I did not like, right. But the fact that the demand was, there was more demand in the summer of 2018 than there was in 2017, but the prices were significantly lower. Clearly somebody was dumping that inventory and they, well, I, the only, The only way you could sort of see it is amazon so we were we were tracking prices there were you could buy these big jugs on amazon but if you want to do it do it Mm -hmm. yourself uh, you know replace your um, air conditioning gases and those were a pretty good way to track it and so you know we were tracking those prices and they were similar and i saw them i never saw like on the amazon site or ebay sites where you could buy like, you know, 10,000 pounds of R22, like, right, there was never anything like that. So it's hard to, to judge that, but clearly there was some shadow inventory that somebody was trying to dump that, uh, uh, that caused it. So it just, again, one of those weird dynamics that I still don't understand, but, uh, and I will play dumb here in this particular situation because, um, but it was one of those things that was really hard to confirm. Um, and the one guy that was trying to confirm it was biased.
2: Right, right. It's, it's, it seems like, uh, you know, it seems like there were some things there that, uh, w- at least with the inventory issue that were sort of were some, some question marks around it. So you initially got into it. Um, thinking it could become a, you know, take a balance sheet story, go to an income statement story, and then they did this transformational deal. How did you manage around the, the, the position and did you, take some off when people really like the deal. And like, what, what What was your thinking as time evolved? I guess my first question is, how long were you involved? And then sort of, how did you manage this? And you mentioned hedging at one point. I'd be curious how exactly you you, you hedged a, a micro cap
1: stock position. With, with there were options. options, there were options, there were short term options available. It. Cause they got, oh. it got, it, beca- it became like a hedge fund hotel in some way, like I, I got into it really low. So I made like 200%, I certainly, you know, have some portfolio management risk rules, where I took a big part part of it off. Uh, I did add to it once the stock price started dropping, and uh, uh, after the acquisition, because I thought the acquisition was a really good acquisition. It still it still made sense, and so I, that's sort of how I managed around it. If that, I don't know if that. Helps you, but there were right, be- right when I said I- I'm going to give credence to these short reports and see what happens. And before that earnings call, where like those two red flags popped up, I, uh, I-, I, I had a, I had a hedge position in my position because
0: the, the-, the
1: stock dropped precipitously after that earnings call. <laughs> <laughs>
2: there it is. So, so you hedge the position, the earnings call comes, they mention this covenant issue, and you think to yourself, oh, crap, these guys don't control their own destiny. Maybe the shadow inventory issue is actually really real. Do, do you cut bait at that point? Is is it just as simple as oh, that for you?
1: Yeah, no, it's exactly what it was. It was like this clearest signal as you could have. And, you know, the, the thing is, is I am the more interesting. I, I'm much smaller. I was much smaller at the time uh, in assets under management. So I didn't, you know, I was just trying to build a track record and I had a, a few clients a lot more than or a lot less than I do today. And so, so I, I can't, even though I'm still pretty small as a fund, um, I generally probably can't do that as well today than I could in two years ago. Um, just cut bait, like, or hedge, like some of these positions, but, uh, um, and uh, uh, yeah, but that to answer your question, yeah, it was hedged. And so the moment they said that I clearly recognized the hedge, Gains and sold the uh, and, and so and sold the position because uh, yeah that was that was scary like yeah all, all of a sudden their ibadah debt to ibadah went from like two to twelve right and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah uh, no, and that, that, all of
2: a sudden they got to rely rely on the kindness of strangers to survive sure. and uh, doesn't sound like yeah. a great situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can't, the, the CEO who just died was a young guy. And so can't imagine these last two years were, were, were good for him. I'm sure they were very stressful. And so that probably not, wasn't good for his health either. So I feel bad. So, but, uh, lesson learned.
2: So Yeah. So, so that's all good. So if we're going to put a bow on this, what would you say the main two or three lessons you learned from this, this experience, uh, being involved with this company?
1: Yeah. I, uh, that was one of the clear example where leverage in microcaps does not work. Um, it's just not a good idea. Um, second a confirmation of uh, secondaries and microcaps are also a bad idea. They're usually a signal of, 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 of more mismanagement to come or it's, it's more of a CEOs thinking they become empire built. Like when they do a secondary, is like I said, it's probably usually some investment bank uh, whispering in their ears saying, hey, you can become an empire builder. Your can, company can be a mid cap instead of a micro cap and look how cool all of our other mid caps are. And so that's always just something to, um, to keep in mind that if, if that's what these guys are thinking. But um, I, I would say that was one of the rare scenarios where an insider slash founder uh, made a bad decision with with his own capital, right? Mostly, and I wouldn't say that was a lesson learned. I, I would say this one in particular was more of a fluke where the guy was just too naive. But for the most part, I have found the uh, guys with skin in the game will tend to be significantly more uh, cautious about taking on those sort of debt levels or making these sort of acquisitions without having some sort of, control over it or over the situation i mean but there's like three of us here like you know if you if you had 25 million dollars at play or maybe even significantly more at the time and uh you know would you and you had an opportunity to make a transformational acquisition but you had most of your wealth tied into this thing would you not put like some sort of risk management into this? Like, would you like hedge price, hedge your inventory prices? Something like that, like not without, you know, have some sort of visibility where you feel confident. Like, am I stupid to think this? Like, what do you guys think?
2: I mean, I think I, I would uh, sort of agree that um, if I could hedge my exposure, I certainly would. I don't, I don't know what the actual ability to hedge uh, refrigerant coolant uh, air compressor prices really is, but, um, you know, uh, I mean, my, in my experience, having, having properly aligned management and having a lot of skin in the game, like you described is, is is very important, but you just have to recognize that people are people they make mistakes. And so you can, people are, you know, they're going to take them, they're, they're going to the decision-making process, I think is they're going to take it more seriously with their own money, but they're, they can still be wrong every now and again.
1: So,
0: yeah. People are um, fallible, but that's you the, what that's I, the, at least part what the process. I want to make sure I have some sort of insight in the input costs uh, or some strong opinion or idea of of where the import costs are going to go. I mean, you need to have some visibility into the industry. If they don't, and, and the real question is,
2: like, do we really control our own destiny here or not, I think is the real is the real question when you when you take on a deal like that, because um, in my in my mind, I mean, Eric and I have both been involved in companies where there's a big shareholder that has a lot of. We've been involved in stories where a big shareholder that has a lot of skin in the game, and but you know, the stock looks cheap. It's a balance sheet story that maybe could turn into an income statement story, just like you're describing, and you know, they don't. at the end of the game, they don't. At the end of the day, they don't really control their own destiny, and so if there's and again leverage, uh, if you have a lot of leverage, you don't control your own destiny. It's uh, that can be. Uh, explosive right uh it's a powder keg of uh potential potential uh that could potentially blow up
1: yeah i mean like the, the other thing to think about is uh the difference between micro caps and small caps and management teams or and larger ones that you had you know you had asked this question earlier what's the main difference and the you know you can have like a cbs or i don't know like a philip morris these are multi-market, multi-product companies that have multiple revenue and profit streams that are diversified where they can take on these debt. And one of the more interesting things about, or not interesting, but different things about the micro cap or this nano cap space is these tend to be one market or one product uh, sort of, or one industry minded uh, uh, things where you are, sort of at the whims of that industry or of that product. So there is significantly less diversification for the debt writers or whoever, you know, the, for the lenders and obviously significantly more risk for the equity holders because these companies will tend to trade much more volatile. They become equity stubs essentially if, if mm-hmm. things go wrong. And so yeah. like that's, that's why you can, you know, that's why you can lose up to like eighty percent trading session if, if if the debt if the debt's bad. You don't want that, like right? And so, and I try to be a yeah. Warren Buffett value type of investor. So that was, like I said, I, a very interesting lesson. It didn't hurt me as much, but yeah, it was annoying.
2: Well, I mean, but I mean, the, 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 I mean, the lesson I think for is is that debt is sort of like a tool. It's a tool like anything else. It's like fire. It can heat your home or it can burn your house down. And I think if I'm hearing what you're saying is if your house is really tiny uh, you know, it, 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 it can, it can get burned down very quickly before anybody shows up to, to put it out. And, uh, I think that there's a lot of, uh, truth and insight to that, that, uh, uh I think a lot of beginners in investing might, might take well to heart.
1: Yeah. The story, I do remember this from undergrad. I had this, like, I, in retrospect, he was a big blowhard corporate finance professor. He talked a big game, but he did teach an interesting lesson that I that I won't forget. Like, that probably a little bit simpler to digest, but uh, no pun intended, but debt is like mac and cheese, like, and especially relevant to college students. Everybody loves mac and cheese. Uh, You know, you you can eat a bowl here and there and it's cheap and whatever, but if you eat a whole lot of mac and cheese, you're gonna get sick really, really fast. So there's always like a really, you know, a really good uh, uh, ground, like a bowl or two of mac and cheese is okay, but you know, eating, gorging yourself on mac and cheese, you get sick really, really fast. So there's like that's probably more one that anybody can relate to. Is like, right? Don't don't overeat the mac and cheese, and uh, don't right. don't over, don't overplay with fire. So and uh, and I think a lot of these guys don't realize the capacity of their stomach for 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 what they're doing. So
2: yeah, that makes a lot think, of sense, yeah. Peter. This, this is a great great story. Yeah. Um,
0: Peter, where can people find out uh, more information on you? I hear you have a, a Twitter handle, is that right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I tweet on it less, Artco Capital,
1: that, that that's, that's my fund, uh, that's uh, i mean, I'm, I'm, I, I certainly don't try to market myself on there, that's more of a sarcastic uh, thing, and occasionally I will discuss a thought here and there, but I found that there's a lot more trolls on the internet, and I just don't wanna engage with them, so I tend to stick to, Kind of uh, a few funny jokes here and there, or thought uh, occasionally. Um, and then, like the other thing is, I, you know, my my investors pay me money to make investment decisions, and so or pay me fees, and so why would I give away the cow for free on 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 the internet? So I, I tend to do that less. But so if you're if you're interested about the fund, is info at artcocapital.com is a r t k o capital is a is a good email to to send for documents for qualified investors and if you are uh, if you're just looking for uh, uh for a conversation I'll occasionally respond on Arco if it's a low afternoon low key afternoon or something like that and so those are the two kind of and, good ways and, to get to fun.
2: And Peter you write some pretty great letters so if they email you at info at Arco mm-hmm. would you put folks on your distribution list to get uh, your communications and everything where you share your thoughts
1: Yeah I uh this might be the most difficult question you've asked so far, because I'm, I'm really I, you know, this worked really well for like the first five years of distributing my letters, but I, uh, I'm, I'm actually trying to figure out whether I want to cut that down and just only have uh, It's for my investors and a few prospective investors and um, I don't know, I, I haven't really enjoyed the I try to be very transparent, but it does bring a lot more critics and that makes your life unpleasant. And so I've been trying to figure out whether that's something I really want to continue. So maybe, so the, the short well, answer is, is maybe. Okay, so well, my well, hope you I, for you is that
2: your life is, it's is filled with pleasantness. So I'm not, yeah. uh, we're not gonna throw that out there that they'll definitely uh, get put on the list to get your ideas.
1: Uh, well, Gary, with friendship like yours, it's always filled with pleasant pleasantness. So <laughs> thanks, for, uh, th- th- thanks for inviting me. This has been fun. fun, fun uh, Thursday morning with coffee and uh, good conversation. Yeah, thank you, yeah, Peter. I, really I appreciate, appreciate it. Yeah,
2: I appreciate being here. Yeah, and, and we're having guests like Peter on. This is going to be a, a regular part of what we're doing. We'd like to meet some smart people and learn about their battle scars. And so, Peter, if you know anybody else that you think would be a good guest, uh, send them our way. And uh, if anybody's listening to this that would like to come on, uh, feel free to reach out to Eric, Eric and I, or or um, and Eric, where can they find us?
0: Uh, yep. You can find us on our blog, www.acredowealthpartners.com. We have our Facebook, we have our LinkedIn. Feel free to like or subscribe to us in there. We're available anywhere. Podcasts are available. Also in the market trenches.podbean.com. Uh, and you could also find us on the SNN network website, SNN.network or the SNN network, uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com slash wire. Um, Peter, Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing the story and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks guys. Thanks Peter.